Good morning, and welcome back to the Patreon-exclusive podcast, Dance Dorothy Dance. This is our Dorothy Arzner podcast. Uh, my name is B. Peterson. Uh, I am the creator and host of, of this podcast, and with me as always is... Mark Edward Hoyk, uh, for, former movie geek and uh, general man about town. All right. Um, so, first things first, uh, by the time this podcast is released, um, our big... Our big project will be out, and uh, our big project is an episode. We got to guest host an episode of My Dinner with My Dinner with Andre over on the Critically Acclaimed Network. And how it works is I did one recording with each of my co-hosts, with Anna and Harold and Mark, and uh, all of those were I just let it go as long as as long as uh, uh, it felt comfortable for, for each of them, and that an- ended up with five hours of audio. And then initially I wanted to edit it down to 90 minutes because I felt that that was probably, I mean, can we really, is more than 90 minutes is probably going to be too much, but it ended up being impossible. And so the final product that you can go over, uh, probably right now over to the Critically Acclaimed Network to listen to, is we have a podcast that is one hour and 51 minutes and 44 seconds long, which is the exact length of my dinner with Andre. <laughs> so we have essentially created a pseudo commentary track for my dinner with Andre, um, where you can listen to uh, all of all of the members of the Screens Margins podcast network talk about how much they loved or hated the film. And And what I think is really cool about it is that all three conversations are entirely different in in style and in and in content so it's it's i'm i'm really proud of all the work that that um my co-host did i'm really proud of the work that that i put into it the final product is a result of 70 hours of work in some form of another so yeah uh uh congrats us we did a thing <laughs> Uh, a a big big thing because most of uh, the episodes of my dinner with uh, my dinner with Andre have been uh, much more modest in scale and scope and you know, this is certainly the most ambitious episode that has been uh, created for 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 this program and certainly the most innovative. Well, I mean, and that's not to slight the other episodes. Because no, not really at all. The only the only instructions that Bibbs and Whitney give is, "Hey, watch my dinner with Andre, and then talk about it for a bit." That's the only instructions we were given. And I was like, you know what? What if we watched it without sound? What if we watched it uh, sound only? And what if we watch all of these other things besides? And we just, I. And what? Why don't we also talk about all of the other episodes of the podcast and and reference that kind of stuff? And so it's just so much, so much. I I don't know why I do this to myself when I take on projects, but I I yeah, but I I I am really proud of of everything we did for it. Yes, and who knows if we will actually find the last invisible dog on uh, on this particular episode but it's worth it to take the journey yeah that, that's so, a mouse and his child reference for okay. anyone who's totally lost <laughs> all right which would include me um i was like you know what mark's going deep cut i'm just gonna let him do, do it, it. <laughs> uh, 
I'm 52 years old. I'm going to remember weird things. Look, Beverly Cleary just passed away, and a huge chunk of my childhood went with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at and she's literally she, at literally twice the age you are. She's 104. That's yes. ridiculous. That's that's congratulations to her. I should be so lucky. So, but uh, as for as for this podcast, um, we're talking about. Surprise, surprise, another Dorothy Arsner joint. We, we've we done a couple films um, that were only partially um, partially hers, but uh, we're back to full, pure pure Arsner joint. And, um, and the film we're talking about today is uh, 1930's Sarah and Son, starring Ruth Chatterton and Friedrich March. Uh, we just saw them on last episode uh, when we talked about Paramount on Parade in the sequence, which we both agreed this one was definitely directed by Dorothy Arzner, even though we couldn't verify that concretely, which also had Ruth Chatterton and Friedrich March in a World War I setting. And now we are yet again in a World War I setting. Uh, this is a film about a an Austrian immigrant um, in the U.S. And the because of shenanigans with World War I and classism and all of these things, uh, she ends up on a journey to searching for her child. And that's, that's the cent- focus of this film. And yeah, it's classic Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Well, in a sense, it is one of uh, the it's one of the oldest uh, tropes in stories. If we think about you know, going back to the Old Testament, what is the story of Moses? But a mother reun- trying to reunite with her child in a roundabout fashion by right. putting him into the arms of a surrogate parent and then. In her case, you know, she's you know, uh, immediately reintroduced herself into his life, but not you know as his actual mother. You know, so right. you know, pre- pre- preparing for a time when she can re re-enter a- as his proper parent. So, uh, you know, the 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 notion of the 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 mother separated from child and the journey to return is uh, a an enduring thing and i'm you know it's an instant sell for me okay because <laughs> yeah, uh it's it's gar- it's guaranteed to it's it's you know it's a guaranteed tearjerker type of story and you know sometimes it's done well sometimes it's done manipulatively but you know as douglas sirk once said, "I this is the moment I want five hundred handkerchiefs to come out of pockets, and they almost always do." Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, and the specifics of this story, I think, are what 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 made this film for me in that um, the idea of this specifically the idea of in an immigrant woman who is trying to find success at the opening of the film. She's a, she wants to be a vaudeville performer and she's trying to do this with her husband. Um, and, or, or maybe it's just partner. I can't, I can't quite remember. It's never quite clear if they are married or not, mm-hmm. but they are together and they do have a, an infant son. 
and um and they're both aspiring vaudeville performers and however uh uh the J- jim uh, jim gray is played by fuller mellish jr or mellish jr in his final role he died at the age of 32 um and uh i believe i think it was a heart attack or a stroke um but which is tragic but he he does he does a good job in this film and um as just he's 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 lazy but yeah he's he clearly <laughs> does not have the the any any ambition even for for the arts because you know he wants to perform but he's not you know gonna put in the time to really hone the act yeah and and nor is he going to put in the time to make any money to support (laughs) his partner and child and and when it when it when war comes around and he's the 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 opening what I will say is that there are the 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 version that we watched um which uh, like uh with Paramount on Parade uh is uh renamed um it was is now titled because it was sold to Universal they renamed it as Cradle Song Well uh let I should clarify uh to the best of my knowledge what we saw there's nothing missing from it but Correct. Universal and UCLA with some money from Jodie Foster did a restoration of uh, Sarah and Son on film which I was lucky enough to see back in uh, I believe 20, 20 uh, it was a couple of years ago when uh, the new Beverly did a whole month of uh, female directed programming and did all of these, a whole Sunday's worth of Dorothy Arzner uh, screenings, so and that and that print God. was was gorgeous. You know, within the limitations of what you could do with uh, that material and uh, the negatives being lost. Okay, but uh, for me, like the the first twenty minute or or maybe like 10, 15 minutes were specifically hard because the audio quality on this on this copy isn't the best, and um and so it was for specifically like the opening like ten fifteen minutes the some of the details the plot details were a little hard to make out, but the gist of it is is that Jim Gray, who's unambitious, there's a war coming like the people this is set in nineteen fifteen and um World War one is brewing and the and he's like, well, I guess this is a way to make money but but um and he tries to get a loan from this uh uh rich uh entrepreneur uh character this uh ashmore john ashmore and and the guy says it's like well i'm not gonna loan you but i'll tell you what i'm really jealous that you got this kid because my wife is barren and boy sure howdy we'd love to have a kid and it results in him in a drunken stupor giving away the child and yeah the the men in this film friedrich march notwithstanding are and even him, at the, when we first meet him, are just like, yeah, men, men aren't the best, are they? No, no. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. There, there is, there, there is just no quarter uh, given for for adult males in in this movie. That that at best they kind of have to be dragged kicking and screaming into uh, doing the right thing. Yeah. 
and and even then they're probably as as with the Friedrich Mark character there's there's some uh uh admiration of of Ruth Chatterton that's that's heavily involved in that decision making process yes um, uh, and but no, I, would, I would throw in that uh, the night that I watched Sarah and Son I had uh one of the groups I belong to on Facebook is uh, dedicated to Mad Magazine, and okay. there is uh, an illustration they did uh, parodying uh, military recruitment ads, and uh, the tagline was, patriotism is a great motivator. Unemployment is a greater motivator, and that's exactly what happens in the sequence where he's, you know, he, he, he's He's broke and he's kind of fed. He's kind of fed up with his home life. And he, oh, sign up with the Marines and be uh, and and ha- and be gone for four years. Yeah, this will solve a whole bunch of problems. Mm-hmm. And so that you know the armed forces prey on you know the weak. Yeah, that's that is true. And it it may not. And I may be reading this wrong because of the picture quality of the print and my ha- fa- hazy memory, but. There, there is an introductory scene where they're getting their big break in vaudeville, and uh, Sarah perform performs a performs uh, the Brahms lullaby, what or what right. we call it as, and she has just received a a letter that her sister has passed away, and it's it's not clear whether she knew this going in and did the performance anyway or whether she did the performance and then read the letter uh but there is as she's performing where there is an image of her envisioning and it could be it could be her sister or it could very well be herself but it is clearly an adult woman like dressed as a child next to a a larger scaled bed to make them look small and to me i it was giving it was giving me the notion that you know it to me it looked like it was uh ruth chatterton herself and in imagining the fact that she is barely an adult her herself that she's probably her, you know her character is only you know in her 20s at, at the oldest mm-hmm. and is newly arrived in America, can barely speak the language, and speaks with a very thick accent. You know, you know by you know by modern day uh, you know, lang- language and uh, a dialect teachers' uh, metrics probably way too much. <laughs> that uh, I'm reminded of uh, of the joke. Um, the, I'm looking for a three letter word for attempt. Vi. Why? Because I'm doing the crossword puzzle. Uh, but it's getting across how she's got to be the most mature person in this relationship, and she's just you know barely out of pigtails herself. And right. So so yeah that that scene um I because one I had to pause the film because 
and this is this is I this is a generational thing. I can't really read cursive that well, um, and like uh, uh, they literally stopped teaching cursive to us halfway through third grade. Like I I knew the first half of the alphabet in cursive, and then we came back from winter break, and it just wasn't part of the curriculum anymore. <laughs> and so we just stopped learning it, and it screwed my handwriting up. It was really weird. Because I'm like the last generation. I, w- I was the last generation, I think, will be the last generation to have cursive taught in schools. Like, it, anyway. Um, but, so I had to pause and, like, I saw, like, the letter, which we see the letter before she goes on stage, though it's not entirely clear. You're right. It, whether she's read it. And, yeah, and then it follows, which is, and then it follows that up with that very, uh, uh, frankly, like, surprising image of having this this superimposition uh, up in the corner of the screen which I was like hold on that's that's not the that's not the backdrop that's that's a that's a uh, that's a thought that's balloon a, right exactly and and I think I think it works either way um because we cuz after that we see her we see her run off stage and then the next time we see her she's sobbing collapsed on the floor because she's read she's and she's holding the letter and so I think either interpretation works in terms of as to whether she has already read of, read the letter and she and and because I couldn't make it out clearly like that might very well be her sister up in the in the thought bubble as it were or if she hasn't read the letter and that is herself I think either interpretation works thematically so Though it is odd because the sister is never really mentioned throughout the rest of the film. Well, I think it's le- what it's trying to get across is that I believe there is a line of dialogue saying that her parents are dead. Yes, there is. It's it's so it's getting across the fact that now she is completely on her own. She has no right. parents to lean on. She has no family to lean on. Uh, she is in an unfamiliar place with an unhelpful partner and mm. she it, and a newborn. Yes. And then the other thing I want to point out before we move on to, I guess, the bulk of the story, which is uh, Sarah's attempt to get her son back, is I want to give a shout out uh, to one of the un- one of the uncredited performers in this film, which is uh, we've got an appearance from Madame Soltawan in this film. Um, which is a name that I I've I knew from like from like hit re- research in in his history lessons on history of cinema, but I had never actually seen her in anything. And Madame Sultawan uh, was the first black actor, uh, male or female, to become like like a get a, be a contracted performer for for a for a big studio and and she appears here as i believe the maid or at least another tenant in the in the building where uh sarah and and jim are living yeah uh the the impression i got is that she is the the maid to the the opera impresario who ultimately hires her and takes her back to germany to to, to learn and and study it, it suggested that they live in the same that they live in the same building but mm-hmm. uh you know they have this comparably small one-room apartment and they you know they have whereas this uh empresario has something larger so i don't know how that you know architecture works out but none 
but nonetheless that yeah it, it it it's a major footnote and i think that is definitely something intentional on on Arzner's behalf and also on uh, the the screenwriter's behalf who is uh, also a woman and a frequent Arzner collaborator Zoe Akins right yeah and anyway so that when that when that appeared when she when she first appeared in the film I was like hello I was not expecting this pleasant surprise. And then I did the research of like, okay, so who is this? And it turns out that it was a name that it was, I was already familiar with. And so it's like, yeah, this is, it was really cool to see her in this film and she's very good. Um, but yeah, and she, she takes, she's taking care of the child and she is the one who Jim is like, no, no, it's fine. Leave the kid with me. And then he, in a, in a drunken stupor sells the kid off. And, and I think it's very, it is very deliberate in how it depicts the fact that Sarah is behaving deferential to the maid. Mm-hmm. You know that yes, you know, she yeah. yeah that you know she she is you know, that you know, that that this is a rare moment in in 30s cinema where you know a a Caucasian woman it has it putting herself on an equal stance with yes. Yes, that by by you know by the audience's standard she is lowering herself to this character's standard she sees them as the same you know that yeah. because she does not you know she's not spent enough time in America to know uh, how terrible the racial uh, equanimity is or non-existent yeah. as it were. Yeah, and yeah, and this is this worthy worth of pointing out. Um, this is a pre-code film, and and depictions like these would not long stand. Yes. Uh, for for the 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 boards of of morality screw screw the, the Hayes Code. It's just yeah. every time. Oh lord. <laughs> and what I th- I thought was like really. It's 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 always kind of surprising for me to see is and I think it happens a lot more in older films than it does in in contemporary cinema is just casual big time jumps in movies, which is something that you don't I, I don't think you really see a ton of in in newer cinema because there's a lot more focus on is like, oh, the actors and their age and all this different stuff. But we over the course of this this film takes place over 12 years and and so yeah and after the this the child is is gone then we jump we jump two years ahead and she's um and we see ruth chatterton performing for a bunch of veterans and uh sings a song not not unlike the song she sings um in in Paramount on Parade, and um, and she has the encounter with Jim Gray. Is like, what did you do with my kid? And he's dying, and he's like, I sold him off. I'm so sorry. I regret it. And she's like, Well, screw you. And <laughs> and and now she's on a now she's on a quest. Yeah, and you know that they 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 dispense with him pretty quickly. You know that you know he's got he gets he gets his karma in abundance. Yeah, uh, that he he's he's made he's made this terrible decision for all three of them, and he's you know, and he's going to you know pay the price for it. Yeah, and she goes to um, and she goes to John Ashmore is like, hey, you got my kid, and and uh, John Ashmore is like, hold on, 
Uh, no, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. And also, here's this lawyer who happens to be um, my brother-in-law, uh, played by Friedrich March, Mr. Uh, uh, Howard. And he's like, "Do you? You're, I'm sorry, but you're this clearly like." I know that I might be biased or whatever, but you're clearly delusional and maybe we should have you committed. <laughs> um, and I, I, I love this, this just completely frank portrayal of, yeah, this is called gaslighting. And though this movie did come out 10 years before or the movie gaslight, um, which is where the term gaslighting comes from. Um, but is like, yeah, just this beautiful frank portrayal of, of, of the patriarchy and how it functions and, and and how it it uses stuff like delusional hysterical uh, uh, might as well commit this woman she's clearly crazy yes that it is in within the context of just you know this movie and the time period they're doing it strictly for melodrama you know that right. you know that you know that there might there might as well be a snidely whiplash mustached twirl but. <laughs> But it, it b- bizarrely, because they're not, it is a melodrama. They're not going to make any bones about nuance, you know. And in a way, it's more nakedly honest about you know what the practice is like. And then once John Ashmore leaves, Friedrich March shows that he's more sympathetic character and is like, okay, look, I get that you must be clearly going through something rough, but I'm sorry, but th- we've these guys, they've got lawyers, they're rich. They can afford to to destroy you if they want, and you simply you don't have the recourse. Let's be honest here. And so I, th- it would simply be the for the best if you just dropped it. And so Ruth Chatterton responds by, "Well then, I'm off to go get as powerful as I can." And she does, and she leaves for ten years, and to become to become a famous opera singer. And by golly, through the course of two cuts, she does it. <laughs> Yeah, that that she com- she comes back ten years later, more affluent, with better diction, and now she's on an equal footing with these people that she's got to go up against. I I got to admire uh, uh, classic Hollywood storytelling. They they can be super freaking efficient. Um, the the because in a if this movie were made today, you'd you'd have at least twenty minutes of her going through the motions of becoming this famous opera singer. But this movie, we got a shot of her on a boat, followed by a shot of of her, her of a newspaper saying that sh- this is her debut in this one opera, and then shot to a business card that says that she's a prima uh, 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 opera soprano or whatever it is. And that just three shots, two cuts. She's ten years, and what efficient economic storytelling it's brilliant <laughs> i i'm not i'm not sure why uh that that sort of efficiency is eschewed in modern film i'm i'm guessing maybe part of it is because uh the acting styles changed and there was the the desire to look at moments and evolution in a character and want to see the process that that by that by comparison these sorts of leaps in storytelling may have seemed arbitrary and you know that you know I don't I don't want to dump on the method but it's you know you know the stereotype would be okay I'm going through the door and I see her why yeah that it's 
rather than okay, this is what the story tells me to do, and I'm just going to and I'm just going to do it. That it's. I think I would almost say it's maybe kind of the same reason why you don't see screwball comedy work or at work in the modern day in the way that you would in you know pre-code stuff with you know say the Marx Brothers or W.C. Fields, which would be so larger than life and removed from reality, where mm-hmm. that. You know, the, the closest you have is, you know, some you know, stuff like Will Ferrell will do. But even then, there's still this this really hard attempt to ground it in the real world and balance it against, you know, real people's reactions to absurdity. And I think that we've a lot of people have just been conditioned to not. Uh, you know, grasp how to deal with someone who is not living on planet Earth. You know that if, However, if the Marx if the Marx Brothers showed up in your environment, you wouldn't know what to make of them. You'd you'd still be instead of just like, oh, okay, I'm not, I am not on planet Earth now. <laughs> yeah. However. However, Mark. There are some films that do go in this route, and we've had one this year. And I, and I, I, cause, cause don't you remember Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar? Well, that is a (laughs) bad attempt at uh, that kind of absurdity. And, you know, I I know I'm in the minority that I did not care for the movie. Um, I think. And I think one of my my problems with it is that there's there there are there is supposed to be stakes to the story, but there are so many dalliances where they show the stakes don't matter that you're not really worried about how it's going to resolve itself. And also, I'm kind of upset that you know. Two women that I really love, you know, uh, Annie Mumolo and Kristen Wiig, writing this, who wrote *Bridesmaids*, which is one of my favorite movies of the teens. Uh, which I've I've told Paul Fagg that it's basically a Mike Lee movie with better fart jokes. Um, that for 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 two women who know how to write great female characters, that the funniest person they created is the man. Now that's a big problem right there. You know, if it, you know, if Janie Dornan gets all the best, you know, he's the character I laughed at the most, and it's like that's that's not right. You know, the, why am why am I not laughing at Barbin's Barbin Star? And I and my big problem with it is that, and this may just be a personal peccadillo for me. But I really don't like it when you present characters that are supposed to be, you know, tight friends, and you have this arbitrary uh, breakup between them when you know full well they're going to get back together again, or at least mm-hmm. it, fe- it when you do it without any motivation other than, oh, let's make them enemies, 
you know, that I hated it when it was done in the first live action Scooby Doo movie. I hated it in Josie and the Pussycats. You know that because it feel it feels arbitrary. It feels like you know, that oh it, it's it's cheap heat. You know, that whereas if there had legitimate if they had written the story with like a legitimate long-standing beef in their relationship that they tried to smooth over but you know be, rose its ugly head again by their mutual attraction to Janie Dorn and then I could understand you know them you know beginning to be at loggerheads with each other but it when I didn't I didn't want to see them angry at each other I wanted you know, I you know it and you know, you want to have that reunion and sometimes seeing friends at war and then reunited can work, but it's it's got to feel motivated. And this just felt like, OK, we need to split them up and have them trying to undercut each other. And, oh, now now we're going to make them friends again. And I, th- that just really bothered me. I, I think there's enough there's enough women who hate each other in the real world. I want my friends to stay together on screen. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I just I, I I brought that up specifically so that you could so that you could go <laughs> on this <laughs> because I knew you would because I just one of my favorite tweets that that I've 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 ever seen from you was was the one where you were I was bored I've I've got it right here I was bored by Borat two I hated Psycho Gorman and now I've been let down by Barb and Star I think I have to throw up my hands and accept that I don't like comedy anymore if anyone wants me I'll be huddled up with old Homestar Runner tunes remembering when I wasn't a bitter fart like <laughs> <laughs> Uh, three movies, by the way, which I haven't seen, and so I can't speak to them. But I just, I just, I thought that would be a fun detour that I could bring up because you, you just, you walked right into it. And I was like, we do have absurdist comedies, but you didn't like them. Uh, anyway, well, uh, I, well, let, let me say, uh, like, absurdist comedy in the present day is hard to do, and I think right. you know because of the way we've been conditioned. So if you're gonna do it. Um, there's there, that the, the attempts I've seen done, like, I, like, I liked the States TV show, but I hated wet, hot American summer again, because it's a movie with no stakes. And, uh, it's, I think Roger Ebert, when he gave his bad review of it, he said it was playing tennis without a net, you know, that, that, that if, if, if they're going, if characters are going to change personality on a dime, you know, if you're going to have all of these arbitrary intrusions into the movie where there's there's no consistency, then there's there's no way to get involved. It's what I call contrived Dada. Okay. You know, <laughs> you know that Dada, you know, has to be re, you know really anarchic where you, there. You're, you can't predict it and that there's and you can't follow along that, you know, that, you know, that I think of something like uh, Bob Clampett's Porky and Wacky Land, where he where he's you know gone in search of the dodo and and all of these random arbitrary things are happening in his pursuit. And that the only thing 
the only thing he he the only way he can finally catch the dodo is to just be as you know think like him and yeah, but this is also where I admit um as much as I love Howard Hawks uh I hate bringing up baby wow hot take <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love 20th century you know that uh, I think is the, the 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 way funnier movie but and I think part of my problem with bringing up Baby is that there's a huge class differential that nobody ever wants to talk about. Okay. But that's for another yeah. podcast. All right. Yeah, that's for the Howard Hawks podcast, which, frankly, I don't know. I'll stick with Dorothy Arzner. <laughs> yes, yes. There uh, are plenty of other of... people talking about Hawks. Yeah. And speaking of Dorothy Arzner, this movie called Sarah and Son that we're supposed to be talking I'm about. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> Even if all this stuff gets cut out, I, I just enjoy, I enjoy these tangents that you go on because I'm always learning things, which which is what I'm which is what ultimately I'm here for. Well, so, and, and also. Be- I, I what I do think it can be beneficial from our tangents is the fact that we talk about Arzner and old films to demonstrate the fact that they are not just a relic of another time, that they're not something frozen in amber, that they have mm-hmm. something that is every bit as relevant as movies that are out now. That right. you know, that it's taking that it's taking this all-encompassing view of history you know from from then to the present that there can there is 90 years between uh, Sarah and son and where we are now but there is still some inter- there is still stuff that is relatable and you can that you don't have to you know, think like a 1930s person to get something emotionally satisfying out of Sarah and Son. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And well, well put. Uh, so, but but back to the film. So uh, she's uh, uh, Sarah's back. Um, she's got less of an accent now. Which, Frank. Okay. If I have, I. Ruth Chatterton was nominated for Best Actress for this film, and she's very good in this film. However, I think the accent's a bit much, and I was very glad to see it go away partially. Oh um, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> that I that I think this is an era where you know, best acting was you know, kind of equaled the most acting. Yes, or biggest star. Yeah, we might as well nominate you. Or again, biggest kind of accent. Yeah, <laughs> um, but and and it worked in Paramount Paramount on Parade simply because it's a very short scene and most of it is in song. But here it's it's a lot of over the top accent and 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 I think that it's it both interesting for the character in that she is now more quote unquote uh, respectable because she and part of that is connected to her having less of an accent accent that she fits in better and also it's just easier to listen to um because because she is an american actress doing an austrian accent yeah yeah. that you you know they they clearly want to make a point that there are a lot that and the 30s there were likely thousands of immigrants of varying origin in america trying to find their way and a lot of already established uh citizens 
over a couple of generations felt like they could look down on them because their speech was less intelligible or that because they didn't use linking modifiers when they were constructing a sentence. Right. <laughs> and 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 that you know, the that in in the as we talked about in earlier episodes when uh in su- such as uh the bride wore red you know the the old maxim of uh clothes make the man you know that mm-hmm. the appearances di- dictate station that that if she can come and she can speak english with you know, and be understood and use it with proper grammar that she's going to be taken more seriously now than as an immigrant. Yeah. And in the rest of the movie, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Um, this movie felt a little, a little slight to me. And, and I think part of the, a large reason of that, why is because for most of the film, it feels a little repetitive and a, a just kind of, there's there's just kind of a lot of plot in it <laughs> um where where we're okay so now we're going to have this thing and okay so you suddenly are going to have a uh a deaf and mute child so we're going to use you and also we got the Friedrich Marx thing and also Bobby the 12 year old kid is like really fed up with his parents and there's just a lot going on and i feel i feel that it the, the rest of the film is kind of kind of rushed uh, uh, for me, uh, particularly when we get to the resolution. Um, it kind of feels like, oh, and we're doing this now, and now the movie's over. Um, but uh, but what but what I did like is I, I, I really like um, I really like Friedrich March. I think I think he's great. Um, he's obviously, I don't think I've, I've seen him in any, in do a better performance than him in Dr. Chekhov, Mr. Hyde, um, where he's just so lovely and, and big in that film, but I, I like him and I like Philip DeLacy as Bobby. He's just adorable. Um, and he has my favorite line in the film, which I was like, ah, yes, pre-code when he's like, uh, <laughs> like I, I don't swear, so I'm not going to say the line, but, uh, but he's like, mm, I almost swore. And then he just says, I almost said this word and he says the word. And it's, I was just, ah, that's, that's cute. I, I like this kid. Oh yeah. Uh, well, it's, well, uh, yeah, that he's, he's, he's chafing against, uh, his, his adoptive parents because they're basically, tr- they're basically trying to make him a fancy lad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and this doesn't really it it really comes into play uh you know later on in the climax but that it i think first it's to get across that you know that you know, is the the question of nature or nurture and that that he is very that he is very much his mother's son that mm-hmm. like when he when he runs away he doodles that little skull and crossbones <laughs> on, on his note that you know that he's been you know raised in the lap of luxury but he still has this rough and tumble personality ingrained in him you know that that they that can't be be bred out and but most importantly because it didn't it didn't hit me the first time i watched it but it hit me now that you know the in in the in the climax of uh the film you know uh, i we're we're jumping ahead here but that that's fine when 
you know, when when uh, the couple figures out that, okay, now she's serious and she's got the money to tie us up and, you know, cause us trouble, we've got we've got to get rid of her somehow. And all right, we're going to pat our maid has a deaf mute child. We're going to pass this one off as ours, you know, in, in this meeting that she's insisting upon. And then, you know, maybe she'll go away. But in the interim, uh, Bobby has has run off and he's hiding out with Frederick March and he meets and he meets his real mother with them not knowing who the other is and they go off on you know on a moat on a motorboat and over the course of conversation when you know they're talking about him running away and what he wants you know that her son is the first take charge man she's encountered. You know that you know even Frederick March, he's sympathetic, but he's not actually done anything, you know, concrete to help her. You know he, I mean he's you know he's pressed the it's like you know you got to do this. You, you know you got to let her see the kid and you know, be determined, but he's not actively done a direct action to 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 help her out and so he so this this kid is he's he's taken the move he ran he ran off you know he made a decision and stuck to it that he's getting in that boat that he doesn't quite know how to operate properly and he's taking the chance that's her you know that's her blood at work right there and then you know, after they've talked about running away and he starts thinking about, you know, how, you know, what his folks would say, you know, that, and, you know, how it might, you know, upset them. And he's saying, oh, they're as good as parents come, you know, that, that he knows that he's irritated, but he knows they mean well. He is also the first truly conscientious man that she has encountered, you know, that, you know, Frederick kind of dances on being a person of conscience but he never fully commits to it because mm-hmm. you know he's you know he's got his ingrained doubts or he's trying to hold on to his station or he's trying to play both sides that that this is that the, that this is truly her flesh and blood because he possesses the qualities that she has been desperately trying to find in every other man that you know she's been involved with yeah, no, I, I, I guess I hadn't really thought of that. I, um, and and you're right that that even even more so than the Friedrich March character because I th- I think it's interesting that that the last time we see we get like an actual scene with Friedrich March is not a scene with um with Ruth Chatterton. The last time we see him is with um his sister and and uh, uh mr ashmore and telling him off and saying you know what actually i'm on her side now i'm on the kid's side now and i'm 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 disavowing myself of 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 i'm i'm not taking your side anymore and we don't and and then there's also the bit where it's just like and i'm going to i'm going to keep them if if i can and um, which i think is an odd phrasing but i but you're right that the that the real the real strong male in the film isn't Friedrich march it's the kid um and that is ultimately where the film ends is not with Friedrich march and 
and um and Ruth Chatterton, but it's with the kid and Ruth Chatterton. Um Sarah's son, I, 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 I said it before, but this this movie's uh, a little slight, but I but I do enjoy the emotional beats it goes through and, and I do enjoy the performances, particularly from from Friedrich March, Ruth Chatterton and and uh, Philip DeLacy as Bobby. So Yes. It's you know, it it's not the, the it's not the movie you introduce people to Dorothy Arzner with. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's it's melodrama, it's going to hit certain points and contrivances. What may what makes it interesting is the way that they approach it and dramatize it and you know, the the, the little pieces of grit that they throw in in terms of class and and station and you know how a woman on her own is supposed to take on the patriarchy and and i think you know that you know it doesn't reduce it to just a a novelty status you know that and you know again any any you know separate like well, I'm just a sucker for melodrama in general. Like I was rewatching an old episode of uh, sneak previews with Siskel and Ebert, and they were reviewing ice castles and they were <laughs> rightfully taking down all of the manipulative elements of that movie. And, but I'll, but I tell you when I watch that damn thing and she, and she trips and everyone is, Oh, She's blind, <laughs> and and Robbie Benson walks up to her and says, "We forgot about the flowers." I am in a wet puddle of mess when that when that scene happens. Melodrama for me, I'll I'll admit that melodrama just it it isn't really my genre um, of of film. Like it's not what I it's not what I uh, uh, lean towards when I'm like, "Ooh, what do I want to watch?" If if I if I can have something where it's like very subdued, and and nothing not a lot is going on, I'm probably going to take that over some big melodramatic piece. But but I I will say is that after exporting uh, the final uh, my dinner with Andre podcast, um, after spending an entire day just agonizing because like it was it was so much easier to cut two hours. Uh, from from the podcast than to cut the last five minutes. I spent an hour and a half cutting two and a half minutes of audio by the time that it, I was getting down and I was just I was just wiped out by the end of the day and like, you know what? I'm gonna watch all about my mother. And, and that and when it comes to melodrama, I don't think I've seen anything that's better. <laughs> yeah, there there are there are few uh stories of that kind that are done in the in the present day to be sure that are done as well as all about my mother it's uh it's that's a that's a four handkerchief right there yep it for sure is and and there's a there's a couple elements of where like and this is just a matter of of time passing that the language used around trans people in that film has shifted and yes we do have cis people playing trans people and there's just there's small things but overall it 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 still just completely works and which i guess leads me there's not a ton of queer stuff in this film i'd say like i i didn't really get any 
there I didn't I didn't pick up on much queer coding with this film but but it is most assuredly Sarah and son of a very feminist piece a very strong film yes yeah that you know there yeah that it's that it's it's more it's more about you know female solidarity than it is about queer coding right yeah um I always like to look back at old reviews of these movies and they never cease to be entertaining. Um, the New York Times review of Sarah and Son is is a uh, here's an excerpt. Sarah and Son is one of the few audible pictures which are really good enough to warrant criticism of the development of the story. And no matter what are its minor shortcomings, it is an emph- emphatically ingratiating entertainment. Uh, I just, I just like, the, I just love that that the one of the few audible pictures which are good enough to warrant criticism. <laughs> uh, different time. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, the, I mean, you know, the top, the yeah, you know, these talkies are a fad. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I had I had a good time. It's it's short. It's efficient. I I like a short, efficient movie. Um, mm mm-hmm. And yeah, there's there's some good stuff in here. As for next time, um, I'm thinking that we move to uh, uh, Working Girls, which is a 1931 film. Uh, we'll have we'll have Buddy Rogers show up again, um, but this is this is a uh, this is a Judith Wood Francis D joint, and yeah, so that's that's I that's I think what we'll tackle next time. I'm 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 looking forward to that discussion. All right. Um, yeah, uh, but I guess I guess we're we're once again over an hour in recording. It's it's so easy to do that uh, on on this podcast. Um, I, yeah, again, I'll I'll just say it is the, with the my dinner with Andre. Three completely different dynamics that I have with each of my co-hosts. Like, and part of it is is based in technology. Like, uh, with with Anna and Harold, both I'm able to have a much more back and forth conversational dynamic simply because of the way we record um the way we record with with you mark is that if there's any overlapping speaking then it kind of messes with the audio and so it tends to be more just longer uh uh, monologues as it were than than a than a casual back and forth but still it's just i i i just i really enjoy everything that everything that we're doing and so yeah, and and you're if you're listening to this, you're a patron, and so thank you for supporting us for doing whatever we're doing. Um, if you if you're listening to this, then you can you can go and listen to us talk about my breakfast with Blassie for forty minutes, um, and and all of the fun stuff fun stuff with that. Um, but yeah, th- thank you for being a patron. Thank you for listening. It's it's greatly appreciated. Uh, yeah, uh, Mark, why don't you plug yourself? I'm on Twitter at uh, T-H-E underscore H-O-Y-K, the phonetic pronunciation of my name. And uh, you'll find uh, tweets, hopefully not nearly as as bitter as uh, my uh, tweet about modern day comedy. my blog is called The Projector Has Been Drinking. You can find it at projectorhasbeendrinking.blogspot.com. Uh, since we've been talking about uh, mothers searching for their children, I'd like to point you to 
an earlier uh, essay I wrote at the blog that you can find, which is at uh, projectorhasbeendrinking.blogspot.com, an essay I wrote about fantasizing about what would happen if the Kill Bill saga was split into a three-night NBC miniseries. <laughs> and all of the heretical editing decisions that I would make to rearrange the storyline to go over three nights instead of two movies. All right. Um, I, 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 I just, I just want to make sure that I, that I didn't miss something, but in, in our recording of my dinner with Andre, you mentioned at one point that you were 51 years old and today you said you were 52. Did I miss a birthday? Uh, no, I, I, I think I, I think in, I got caught up with my emotions and I meant to say I'm going to be 52. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I just I just wanted to make sure because I've <laughs> my birthday is uh July 17th. Uh so okay. I I'm I'm and since we've all, I since I've already had my half birthday in January, I'm you know thinking about you know the the you know, the, the the march of time. Okay. Yeah, cuz I was I was just I was like kind of like freaking out when you said you were 52. I was like, "Hold on. I'm pretty sure this guy was 51." <laughs> I miss I miss celebrating your birthday, Mark. Uh but all right. Okay. Good 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 to know. <laughs> oh no. When it's my birthday, everybody will know. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah, we will celebrate accordingly. Um yeah. All right. As for me, uh, Twitter letterbox at Blue Gray Closet. Uh, you're a patron of this podcast if you're listening, so you already know where to find us. But uh, so thank you for being here. Um, yeah. Go over. Head over to the if head over to the critically acclaimed podcast network um, and listen to listen to our episode of my dinner with my dinner with Andre because um, while it, it I gotta say it's a much better paced podcast than any of the three uh, uncut episodes. While there's tons of great stuff in all the, in all the uncut episodes that when you condense five, like I, I really did feel like Frederick Wiseman cutting down what felt like hundreds of hours of footage into only one small condensed uh, work. And yeah. And so it's, it's a, it's a tight two hours. I got to tell you, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of dense stuff and a lot of good stuff. So, all right. Uh, with that, uh, th- thank you for listening. Uh, we know that there's a poll these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and mainstream stuff. So thanks for spending us time with us today here on The Margins. Good night. Uh-huh.